Hello, I'm Geoffrey Wyatt, Senior Astronomy Educator here at Sydney Observatory, and I'm going to be talking to you about what's visible in the sky this month for January. Of course, there are a few things that you need to help you with your sky tour. That is, of course, a printed map that you can download from www.sydneyobservatory.com. And, of course, even better still would be the Australian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Long. Now, of course, at this time of year, it's lovely and warm, so make time to go outside, sit on a rug, look up and enjoy the sky. There are so many things up there, even though we don't get a terribly good view of the Milky Way at this time of year. What I'd like you to do is to wait until it's lovely and dark, go outside and find yourself as high a clear position as possible. Now, I appreciate you can't all do this. Some of us live at the bottom of a hill like I do. But if you can find a relatively clear view of the sky so that you can never eat soggy wheat bix, I beg your pardon, so that you can see north, east, south and west, our cardinal directions. And if you can find your way around, it'll make things so much easier and more interesting for you. We're going to start off uh, our tour this month by looking towards the east, fairly high up, about 45 degrees. So 45 degrees is going to be halfway up as we look at it, and it's quite obvious what we're going to start looking at, the brightest star in the night sky, and that is Sirius, the dog star. Now, of course, 45 degrees up is relatively easy. I think most of us could figure out it halfway up. But actually, there are a few things that you can do to help find your way around. Yes, you do need to find your cardinal directions, and quite often in astronomy we call that the azimuth. So we can talk about an azimuth of 90 degrees being east, an azimuth of 180 degrees, which is south, 270 degrees west, and zero, of course, north. So we can talk about our direction from north in terms of degrees going from north to east. That'll help us around the ground. But in terms of altitude, how high up? Well, degrees is what we use, but sometimes that can be difficult. However, if you hold your pinky at arm's length, for most people, an outstretched pinky is about one degree or twice the size of the full moon. Now, 45 degrees above the horizon, that's 45 pinkies. That'll take a while. But there are other things that you can do as well. For most adults, the average-sized adult, a clenched fist at arm's length is about 10 degrees. If you spread your pinky to your thumb, so an open hand span, that's about 15 degrees. Of course, if you're a bigger fellow like I am, it's more, and if you're smaller, it's a little bit less, but on average about 15 degrees. So start off, look due east, three hand spans up, the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius the dog star. Sirius is an intriguing star because it is the brightest star in the night sky. It's relatively close and relatively big, but it's actually a combination. You see, we have an unusual view of things. All stars look like twinkling pinpoints of light. They look like they're the same distance away from us. They're not. Stars are, of course, big hot balls of gas. Some of them are much bigger than others. Some of them are much closer than others. Sirius is relatively close at 8.7 light years. 
That means you see it tonight as it really was 8.7 years ago. You see, you're looking back in the time. So that's relatively close. There are other objects out there that we can see with the naked eye up to just on 2 million light years away. But that's best seen from the Northern Hemisphere, and that's the great galaxy in Andromeda, or M31. Uh, so Sirius is close. It's relatively big. It's about twice the size of the sun as well. So it's a young, hot, bright star that's nice and close. It's been used for a, a few different things as well, which I think adds to its intrigue. You see, thousands of years ago, the Egyptians would watch this star as it is the brightest star in the night sky, and they'd measure the diminishing angle uh, throughout the course of the year between Sirius and the rising sun in the east. And they would measure it day by day and watch it get larger and then watch it get smaller. And it was the getting smaller angle that was important. When the angle got to the absolute minimum that you could still see Sirius in the glare of the rising sun, that was something they'd call heliacal rise. And the Egyptians, as many as four to 6,000 years ago, were able to work out the length of the year to 365 and a quarter days based on that observation. It had them a little confused because a quarter of a day just seemed a bit odd. But uh, later on, of course, Augustus Caesar made them adopt a calendar based on 365 and a quarter days that they had observed, the Egyptians, thousands of years before. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major, the big dog. And Canis Major is relatively easy to see as a stick figure of a dog. If you look at a star map, you'll see very elaborate drawings, and to be honest, you've got no chance of seeing anything like that. The best way to see this constellation is to ask your three- to four-year-old to draw a stick figure of a dog. Then, using Sirius as the chest of the dog, Look for it rising in the east, and hey presto, you'll see a very simple dog figure. Sirius is also interesting because it has with it a very, very small companion. And astronomers, look, to be honest, sometimes lack a little imagination, so they don't have terribly fancy names for a lot of objects. Because this star sits right next to Sirius, it's called Sirius B. And Sirius B is what we think will happen to the Sun in a couple of billion years from now when it dies. You see, Sirius B is a white dwarf. It's nestled in the glare of Sirius itself, or Sirius A, and is almost impossible to see. However, until 2019, Sirius B is about as far away from Sirius A as it can possibly get. So if you have a nice telescope, you won't be able to do it in binoculars, you may just be able to split this tiny, tiny leftover ember of a dead star called a white dwarf nestled in the glare of Sirius. And it's well worth a look. It was discovered in the 1840s by Friedrich Bessel, who was looking at the gravitational wobble of Sirius. Now, Apparently some indigenous communities also looked at uh, Sirius because it's rising in the east at this time of year signalled to them that now is a good time to go and look for tasty young dingo pups. Uh, good for them, not so good for the dingoes I'm afraid. But that highlights a, an important use of stars. 
You see, just about every culture on this planet looks at the stars for two reasons. Well, three at a stretch. To work out the time of year, so to use them as a calendar, precisely what the Egyptians did in the past and what the indigenous cultures did, or some indigenous cultures of this land did in looking for dingo pups, and for navigation, to find your way from place to place, which was very important if you were finding your way across deserts or plains or indeed seas and oceans. But people also used the stars and the pictures that they would make up, constellations, to educate and entertain one another. You see, depending on your age and your eyesight, you can see around two to 3,000 stars from a very, very dark, clear location. In the middle of the cities or larger towns, not so many. In fact, in one city that I like to go to, and that is Tokyo, on occasion I'm able to see one star. So pollution does affect us somewhat horribly for this beautiful natural resource of the night sky. But people would make up stories in the past about heroes and villains, battles and adventures, and they would use these to educate and entertain each other, teach their children morals and all sorts of wonderful things. So the stars have been useful for us for many thousands of years. Once you've had a good look at Canis Major, the large dog, and Sirius, oh, which of course shares its name with the ship HMS Sirius to come to Australia as part of the First Fleet, and more recently sharing its name with one of the characters in the Harry Potter series of novels. Once you've had a look at that, I now want you to turn towards your left ever so slightly, because we're going to look for the rising constellation of Orion the Hunter in the northeast. It's relatively high up and it's very close to Canis Major. As you would expect, Canis Major, the big dog, is one of the hunting dogs of Orion the Hunter. For most Australians, Kiwis and South Africans, uh, look, it's probably easy to say, can you see the saucepan? Now, the constellations have been named predominantly from the Northern Hemisphere. In fact, they've all been named from the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, but in the Southern Hemisphere, we see them the right way up. Well, those in the North would say that they see them the right way up and we see them upside down, but yeah, it's all relative. As we look at Orion in the Southern Hemisphere, Kiwis, Australians and South Africans don't see Orion the hunter as easily as they see a saucepan. So look for three stars in a lovely straight line, fairly close together, and I want you to picture that those three stars make up the base of a saucepan. From one corner, you go up to the top of the saucepan, so it's just a single star, go back down, along the base, up the other side, where you'll see three more star-like objects that form the handle. What you're really looking at is the belt of Orion sitting very close to the celestial equator, and the sword of Orion. If you have a decent pair of binoculars or indeed a small telescope, have a look at the middle star-like object of the handle of the saucepan. And what you're looking at there is a cloud of gas and dust, perhaps 20,000 times the size of our solar system, and you are in effect looking into the maternity ward of stars because you are seeing baby stars being born at this very minute. It is one of the most beautiful sights in the night sky, but you do need a very good pair of binoculars or a small telescope. 
The object itself is called M42, meaning it was the 42nd object in the catalogue developed by Charles Messier, who created a list of red herrings, things not to look at if you were looking for a comet. And this was the 42nd object. And it really is, at this time of year, perfectly placed and absolutely beautiful. M42 is also, of course, better known as the Orion Nebula. The word nebula is simply Latin for cloud because as astronomers start to look through their telescopes, these things look like clouds. And they are, of course, the birth and, later, the death of stars. From the saucepan, the base of which sits on the celestial equator, drop down ever so slightly and you'll see one of the few stars in the night sky to show any sort of identifiable colour. And what you're looking at there is a star with a spectacular Arabic name which has been mispronounced so long that we now call it Betelgeuse. It was originally something along the lines of Abteljaza, meaning uh, shoulder or armpit of the giant. We've now sanitised it somewhat and we just call it the shoulder of the giant, uh, as I mentioned, Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is a truly big star, but it's right on the cusp of being a truly spectacular star as well. You see, it's 600 light-years away, so it's not exactly close. It's a thousand times the diameter of the sun and several times more massive. How massive it is, however... Well, there's still a bit of debate about that, but it's on the limit. It may actually, at the end of its life, which it's in its final stages now, catastrophically collapse and explode as a supernova. We don't know if that is the case or whether or not it'll simply become a red supergiant, shed its outer layers and die a graceful, beautiful death to form something called a planetary nebula and expose what's if you like, the leftover thermonuclear heart, a white dwarf, just like Sirius B that I mentioned at the start of the podcast. So Betelgeuse is dying, and the typical colour of a large dying star is red. Don't expect to see traffic light red. Uh, it is, in fact, more like a golden, orangey, pinky, reddish if you can see anything that's bright and of those colours, you've found Betelgeuse. As we leave Orion the Hunter, who came to a fairly sticky end at the sting of the giant scorpion Scorpius, we head towards the north, but down a little bit to about 38, 40 degrees or so above the north by northeast horizon. And there's another slightly orange, reddish looking star called Aldebaran, and this is the brightest star in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, which is perhaps the oldest of all the constellations. You see, constellations have been around for a very long time. In the 2nd century AD, Claudius Ptolemy created a catalogue of constellations, about 48 of them, and we've been adding to it ever since. Now, these constellations have come to us via uh, ancient Arabic cultures, They've then gone from there to uh, Greek cultures, and then after the Renaissance, they've spread out and, if you like, dominated our worldview of the night sky. So we've largely ignored cultures from other areas of the world. 
but Taurus is generally accepted to be one of the older of all the constellations because it's a beast of burden, if you like, in its barest form. But according to some mythology, it was, in fact, Jupiter, king of the gods, in the form of a bull who was carrying a young maiden on his back to a nearby island. What a bizarre story. Anyway, Aldebaran looks as though it's part of a, a V-shaped group of stars pointing back down towards the horizon. It's actually between us and the rest of the stars in that V, which is actually a group of young stars called the Hyades, and that's an open cluster. Some people think it's a really cool open cluster. I don't, because right next door there's an even better one. I'll come to that in just a moment. But if you can see the upside-down V with the fairly bright orange-reddish star uh, at the end of the V, it's the eye of the bull. And then, of course, it has two very long horns. You see the longer the horns, the more fertile he was, according to mythology, pointing back down to the horizon on the northeast uh, towards the constellation of Gemini. But Gemini is just too low for us to see at the moment. Once you've found that V-shape and the bright star Aldebaran, we then head around toward our north ever so slightly, dropping down, and you'll see a remarkable group of stars. This group of stars is called M45, the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. And there's the rub. It's very, very strange that so many people around the world refer to this group of stars as a group of sisters. They are, in fact, an example of an open cluster. This open cluster is a, a group of very young stars. They've been born, if you like, from the same cloud of gas and dust at the same distance. They have the same chemical composition. Therefore, the only difference between the constituent stars is mass. Oh, and by the way, guess what factor is, in fact, the most important when looking at the life of a star? Yes, it's mass. And as a result, open clusters like these are particularly favoured by astronomy examiners when setting exams for students. So astronomy teachers love them. Astronomy students can almost guarantee that they'll be in their exam. This particular cluster is typically regarded as being one of the finest in the night sky. If you see a long exposure photo of it, the stars, and there's a, quite a few of them there, although you can only see seven to nine with the naked eye, seem to be embedded in a beautiful blue haze. Well, this cloud that they're embedded in, this nebulosity that we can see, is actually not related to them. Uh, spectroscopic studies have revealed that the cloud is moving in the opposite direction to the stars, and it just happens to be a happy coincidence that they're in the same line of sight that we see. Anyway, getting back to the story of the Seven Sisters, why are they seven sisters? Why not, for example, seven hills of Rome or seven dolphins swimming if you're a Pacific Islander culture or something like that? But universally, they tend to be referred to as seven sisters. Indeed, some indigenous cultures of Australia refer to them as seven sisters where one of the sisters has become lost. And it's a fabulous story of the Woody Guttara and the Minima Burney. This group of stars, the Pleiades, is well worth a look at in a pair of binoculars, even if you have to borrow them from your next-door neighbour. Continue around from Taurus to Bull with its little cluster of stars, the Pleiades. We go past the very, very difficult constellation Aries the Ram to see. Uh, you can really only see 
two to three bright stars in Aries. And remember, Aries is the, the ram that produced the golden fleece that Jason and the Argonauts spent so much time searching for. We then pass Pisces, which is almost impossible to see, especially getting down low in the, in the northwestern sky, wrapped around the constellation of Pegasus, once again, too low for us to really see. We continue around towards the west, and the brightest star you'll see ever so slightly south of west at this time of year, about 30 degrees above the horizon, and that is, of course, two hand spans, is Fomolo. Uh, Fomolo is the brightest star in the constellation of Pisces Astrinus. It is the southern fish, not the constellation of Pisces, which is the zodiac constellation. But it's just another fish. Uh, the star Fomolo represents the mouth of the fish. And according to legend, it's consuming the water that's flowing from the jug carried by Aquarius, the water carrier. Look, I can't really see a fish here, and you may not be able to either, but if you've got your star map, uh, you can see it's an unusual-looking shape, but to me, it looks like a paisley swirl. So dig out one of Dad or Granddad's tyres and have a look for some paisley swirls, and you may just be able to see Pisces astrinus, the southern fish. Right next door to it, there are two fairly bright stars in the constellation of Grus the Crane. Look, effectively, it looks like a, a bit of a cross. And then from the midpoint of the cross, there are two trailing legs behind it. So what you are seeing is a crane with a lovely long neck, relatively short wings, I'd have to say, with a couple of feet trailing behind it in flight, although I'd say that one is rather difficult to see. From Grus and Pisces Astrinus, head back up to about 58 degrees, so 60 degrees, that's four handspans, so we're up a fair way. There's only one relatively bright star there, and that's the star Achenar. Achenar is the end of the line in more ways than one. You see, according to the classical mythologies from the north, it represents the end of the constellation Eridanus the river. But to some indigenous culture in this beautiful land of ours, it represents one of two cooking stars for people who have not been too nice, who come to a fairly unsavoury end, if you catch my meaning at the end of their life. You see, although we can't see the beautiful glow of the Milky Way at this time of year, as long as there's no light pollution and there's no moon, fairly close to this bright star Alpha Eridani or Achenar, you may be able to see two glowing, fuzzy, hazy, milky blobs in the sky. Those two blobs are, of course, two of our nearby neighbouring galaxies. They're not the closest galaxies to us. We can actually see those with the naked eye. But these two galaxies are very, very close at just 160 and 201,000 light years, respectively, named in honour of the first man to almost sail around the world, and that is, of course, Ferdinand Magellan. So we call them the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud, and they are completely separate galaxies to us. They're moving toward us because our galaxy, the Milky Way, is the local bully on the block and is, in fact, cannibalising both of these two smaller galaxies. 
These galaxies, according to some indigenous culture, represent some brothers who watch over people and take the bad people at the end of their life to uh, Achenar and nearby uh, Canopus, where they are, well, cooked and eaten. So, ew, not a nice way to go. However, the clouds of Magellan, absolutely beautiful to look at, especially when you consider what they are. Galaxies at 160 and 201,000 light years away. We're now almost facing the south, although we're up fairly high. If you look down and try and find the Southern Cross, you don't have much chance at this time of year. The Southern Cross will be lost in the glow of the horizon, more than likely behind a tree or your next-door neighbour's shed. So you're not going to see the Southern Cross at this time of year, nor will you see the two bright pointers that help you identify it as being the real Southern Cross. What you are likely to come across at this time of year are one or two false crosses. Not really constellations, so we call them asterisms. Unfortunately, there are quite a few of them. The main one is actually an asterism made up of stars from two constellations, Vela the Sails and Carina the Keel, as we head around towards the southeast. It looks like a cross. It's no, no wonder that people confuse it and think it is the real Southern Cross. But it's bigger, it's nowhere near as bright, and it doesn't have the two bright pointer stars. But this false cross indicates a fairly typical problem, and that is we love the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere, but quite often we're not so good at identifying it or waiting until it's in the right position for us to see. By the way, Vela and Carina used to be part of a much larger constellation called Argo Navis, the ship that carried Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece, which of course relates back to Gemini the Twins, of course they were on the ship, and Ares the Ram that produced the Golden Fleece. The constellation was too big, and the International Astronomical Union met here in Sydney in 1930 and broke it up into four smaller constellations, Vela, Carina, Puppis and Pyxis. What you will see above the false cross, at about 60 degrees almost above the horizon, is the second brightest star in the night sky. This star is called Canopus, or Alpha Carinae. It is very, very bright and not far, really, from where we started off at Canis Major and its bright star Sirius. So don't get the two confused. Canopus, second brightest star in the night sky, inherently a far, far brighter star than Sirius the dog star. It's just that it's so much further away. Oh, the other thing about Canopus is that it has a rather interesting little name and story that goes with it from our friends almost due north of here, and that is from Japan. You see, as sailors, fishermen in particular, would sail out looking for their stock of fish from Japan, as they came further south, they would see this very bright Canopus pop up above their horizon. Such a bright star makes you feel good. I mean, after all, we all love the brightness and the sparkle of diamonds, and this was like a diamond in the sky. So Canopus coming up over the southern horizon as fishermen would come south would make them happy and feel good. If you're happy and feel well, the story goes that you live a little longer. And the Japanese name, or the old Japanese name for this star, is Nagaiki, meaning long life. 
Obviously, there's a flaw to this logic for all of us living in the Southern Hemisphere that suit all the time, eh, but it doesn't matter. Oh, and each year there's quite a few photographic competitions in Japan to actually photograph Nagaiki or Canopus as it becomes visible ever so briefly above their southern horizon. But to us, it's pretty much there uh, throughout summer and easy to see because it is so bright. As we come back around towards the east, you would have noticed that Sirius, the dog star, has risen a little bit higher than where we first started. We haven't talked about terribly much that's visible high overhead at this time of year. Well, because there's nothing terribly bright. All the action is around the horizon to within about 50 to 60 degrees. You see, the best time to get the most stars in that beautiful Milky Way is in the middle of winter, which fortunately we're still many months away from, or very early in the morning at this time of year. One of the better parts of the Milky Way is now rising in the east, but we can't see it overhead at the moment. You'll have to wait several more hours before you can see the summer Milky Way. Now that concludes our tour of the night sky at this stage. What we're going to do now is talk about special events for January 2011. The Earth will be at perihelion on Monday the 3rd of January at 4pm. Peri who? Perihelion, closest approach of the Earth to the Sun. Oh my goodness, perihelion, our closest approach to the Sun. Actually, it doesn't mean that we get any hotter, but it does mean that our summer in the Southern Hemisphere is slightly shorter than summer in the Northern Hemisphere. You see, according to Kepler's laws, as an object gets closer to the Sun, it moves faster. So our distance between the Earth and the Sun is at its minimum, but it also means our orbital velocity is at its maximum. Uh, but of course, you don't feel that. Of course, you're moving with the Earth. The new moon for January will be on Tuesday the 4th at 7.03pm, and at around this time of year, that's when we can expect the biggest tides, called the spring tides, although some people do call them king tides. First quarter moon will be on Wednesday the 12th at 9.32pm. The full moon, and therefore another series of spring tides, will be on Thursday the 20th at 7.22am. Last quarter moon will be on Wednesday the 26th at 10.58pm. January this year is a very good opportunity for you to see the planet that causes more people to blush than any other. That is, of course, Georgium Sidus. Georgium Sidus, as it was originally called by its discoverer, Sir William Herschel, the name didn't catch on, Georgia Star. So by the 1850s, everyone had given up on that and now called it the planet Uranus. <laughs> yes, I know, everyone gets a bit of a chuckle out of its name, so much so that many people now refuse to call it Uranus and call it Uranus. Nah, oh well, whichever you prefer. But this January, you have the opportunity to see Uranus with nothing more powerful than a pair of binoculars. But how do you do it? Well, relatively simple. What you're going to do is look toward the west and look for the incredibly bright king of the gods himself, Jove, Zeus, Jupiter. 
Jupiter is a spectacular object to look at through pretty much any telescope because you should be able to see uh, at least the Galilean moons, the four moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, whose view by Galileo Galilei in 1610 changed our perception of the universe forever. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Jupiter because if you put Jupiter into your field of view in binoculars, and most family binoculars have a field of view of about six degrees, very close to Jupiter this month at only one and a half degrees, will be a small bluish-green dot, and you guessed it, there you have Uranus. This gives us an opportunity to see two planets at the same time in the same field of view very close together. Remember, one and a half degrees, that'll be one and a half pinkies, effectively, so very close together at arm's length. But in the field of view through a pair of binoculars, you'll have no problems fitting in the dazzlingly bright Jupiter and also the planet Uranus, second most distant planet in our solar system, after, of course, we gave Pluto the flick in 2006. Please, if you have a pair of binoculars, make the effort to have a look at this because unless you've got a very bright signpost such as Jupiter, uh, Uranus and even more difficult, Neptune, uh, are almost impossible to find. So it is well worth a look. If you're an early riser, as you look towards the east, you'll be able to see the stupendously bright Venus starting off in the constellation of Libra, which will then head east through the constellations of Scorpius and by the end of the month end up in the 13th zodiac star sign of Ophiuchus. Venus is a spectacular view. It is so bright, and as it comes up, atmospheric distortions make it look like it dance and twinkle and shine and turn all sorts of brilliant colours. It is, of course, as I have mentioned before in our podcast, the most common UFO that we get asked about because people see it, and it really looks like it can change position. It's not. It's just the effect of the atmosphere and being such an incredibly bright object. So have a look for Venus named after the goddess of love and beauty, but as I have said in the past as well, ooh, it's a nasty place. 450 degrees on average, Celsius that is, on the surface, 90 atmospheres pressure, uh, it rains sulfuric acid, the planet spins backwards, and the horizon always looks like it's uphill. Yuck. Horrible place to be, but beautiful to look at. If you're after the jewel of the night sky, the planet Saturn, it will rise from about midnight onwards in the constellation of Virgo and is just 8 degrees from the brightest star in Virgo, and that is Spica. Saturn has a slightly yellowish tinge to it, and remember, of course, rule of thumb is that the planets don't tend to twinkle as much as stars, and that should help you identify Saturn as well. If you'd like more information about what's visible in the night sky, please uh, purchase your own copy of the Australian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom, or you're most welcome to visit the Observatory blog for regular updates. www.sydneyobservatory.com forward slash blog. My name is Geoffrey Wyatt. I'm the Senior Astronomy Educator here at Sydney Observatory, and I hope you've enjoyed your tour of the January night sky.